Good to see everybody again this evening. If you would, take your Bibles and open to John chapter 10. John chapter 10 is where our first passage will come from this evening. I feel like I need to say a few things before we get started. I really appreciate Bob taking the lesson last night. I know he did better than I would have done. And I really am, am grateful. You just don't know. I put you on the spot and I appreciate you standing on that spot. Uh, I really needed to do what I had to do. Uh, my wife is doing very well. She doesn't necessarily think she is, but she is. And uh, things could have been a whole lot worse than what they were. She definitely needed the surgery to be done. And she's pretty uncomfortable right now, but things are going very, very well. She wanted me to make sure, and she's watching, so I'm telling them, the ladies, she wants you to, to just know she really appreciates how nice y'all were, how thoughtful and how kind y'all were to her and taking care of her. And I want you to know I appreciate your prayers, your attention to her situation, and thinking about her and asking God to help her because I believe it did some good. So we're going to pick up on our studies this evening. We've really kind of gotten to a changeover point in the lessons that we've been talking about. Uh, we talked about uh, where the resurrection stands as far as Christianity is concerned, that it is the rock of our faith. The empty grave is what we base our faith upon, and that it is, as we said before, the foundation of Christianity. That if that grave wasn't empty, we wouldn't really be doing what we are now. We'd have no reason to. We talked about um, the story that the Bible gives us of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus and then His ascension back into heaven on Sunday night. Monday night, we talked about the fact that we can't do what Doubting Thomas did which is to say, I'm not going to believe he's raised from the dead unless I see him with my very own eyes and touch him with my hands, because we're not going to get an opportunity to do that. But that we have to rely on witnesses. So we spent Monday night talking about the witnesses that Jesus left for us and how that it was no accident that those particular people were left to be our witnesses and it's no accident that they were given infallible proofs. They were convinced when they really didn't want to be convinced. And that, that passage in Acts 1-3, which talks about infallible proof, these people that were not really wanting to believe, by the time Jesus got through appearing to them, they had no choice but to believe because they had seen it with their own eyes. And therefore, they became our eyewitnesses. And we looked at their credibility and, and whether we really have a reason to believe the witness that they have left for us. And I believe we were able to show beyond a shadow of a doubt they're very credible, they're very believable. In fact, it's a lot harder to not believe what they told us than it is to actually believe it. Then last night, we, you studied about uh, the alternate explanations. Now I mentioned the very first lesson that that picture right there representing the empty grave of Jesus. He was buried there and yet three days later the stone was rolled back and he was gone and the grave was empty. 
that because of who Jesus claimed to be, that empty grave demands an explanation. Now, don't think that we're the only one that knows that. The skeptics and the atheists, they know that also. And so they have come up with a lot of alternative ideas as to why that grave was empty. And I just want to point out to you, I'm sure Bob did last night, that what he presented to you, you know, sometimes if you want to argue with somebody or represent somebody, a trick you can use is you make up a straw man, some silly story that they really don't believe and it makes them look silly and that's how you win the argument. That's not what was done. The things that you heard last night were the best that the smartest scholars and skeptics in the world over 2,000 years could come up with. And to just be honest with you, it's not much. Just like Bob said, it's very easy to overcome their theories and their ideas about why that grave is empty. It is much, much more believable to believe the Bible story that Jesus really was raised from the dead. So that brings us to this point in the meeting. Several times we've talked about that we need to, to think about what it means. Okay, we, we now hopefully at a point, we know the grave was empty. We know it's empty because Jesus was raised from the dead. And the question is, so then what? What does it mean? I want to begin with you in John chapter 10. Now, let me just tell you, he talked about me cutting these lessons down. Uh, it was very hard to get where I've gotten to with just this number of lessons. The lesson tonight is three sermons combined into one. Okay, I'm just letting you know, you're not going to get all of all three sermons. So don't, you just, don't worry about that. But, but there's a lot of information here. And so take your Bibles. I will probably go fairly quickly through some of the verses. So try to stick with me on that. I don't think, I don't talk too fast. So I probably can't leave you too far behind. But just, just be with me on that because these are very, very important things. What does it mean when we believe that grave was empty because Jesus was raised from the dead? In John chapter 10, where we will begin, in verse 37, John 10, verse 37, Jesus says, If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Jesus is talking to some people who aren't believing what he's saying. He's talking to them, telling them some things, and they just don't want to believe him. And so he then says to them, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I am doing the works of my Father, and those would be miraculous things, and they were, and he was doing those things, listen to what he says. If you don't like me, don't let me stand in your way. If you don't like what I'm saying, you never heard this kind of thing before, don't let that stand in your way. Instead of looking at me as Jesus from the city of Nazareth and all the things that they uh, said about him to, to put him down for that, he says, look at the works. Look at what I'm doing. And I want you to notice the phrase where he says, believe the works. 
Believe the works. The works talk. The works have something to say. We, we talked about where Jesus said the crowning work, the crowning sign, was going to be him being raised from the dead on the third day. That's the crowning work, the crowning sign. That empty grave talks. That empty grave has something to say. And what I would encourage you tonight is to listen to it. Believe the work. Get what the work means. That's what we're going to be talking about the next two nights. And so again, the empty grave of Jesus talks. It has something to say. The question is, will we listen and accept what it has to say? So to begin with tonight, the empty grave of Jesus speaks of the power of God. The great power of God. That He is the Almighty God, as the Bible tells us. So what would we, what would we need to be thinking about the power of God? Well, the Bible tells us what to think about that. Look in Psalm 33. In Psalm 33... And verse 8, it says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the earth stand in awe of Him. For He spake, He spake, and it, and it stood fast. He commanded, as He spake and it was done, He commanded and it stood fast. Here it's talking about His power He used to create the world. When I look at that, when I look at Jesus being raised from the dead, I should stand in awe of the power of God. Notice what else it says. It says in verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Yeah. I don't know where it really started, but lately, last few years, there's been a thought process that seems to be going around some places that somehow or another, if you deal with God and try to do what's right because you're afraid of God, that somehow or another that's a lesser thing, a lesser reason for you to be pleasing to God. If you are afraid of God, some, there's just something you don't get about God. I heard a man stand up and preach a whole sermon about three years ago, and the whole sermon was about we need to get rid of this idea of being afraid of God, of fearing God. We don't need to teach our children that. We need to stop talking to our children about fearing God, and we need to just completely get that out of everything. Sometimes people get an idea. And it sounds so good and so deep and so profound that they just go with it. And sometimes the problem with that is it's not deep and it's not profound. It's just wrong. That's why they never heard it before, because it's just wrong. Okay? So let's read some verses about fearing God. Matthew chapter 10 Matthew chapter 10, there in verse 28, 
He says, fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. That would be persecutors. That would be other people. They can kill your body, but they can't kill your soul. But then he says, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's God. He says, don't be afraid of them, but do be afraid of God. Okay, look in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. There in verse 12, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. He says, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Who are you supposed to be afraid of? Whose presence should you tremble in? Well, it's God. We do need to be fearing God in our life. And there's going to be a result, a good result that comes from that if we really do fear God the way we should. Look in Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Verse 7 says, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. In the assembly of the saints, yes, we love God, we praise God, but he's greatly to be feared in the assembly also. And when you put that with what we read in Philippians 2.12, that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, the idea is I need to be afraid to get it wrong. I need to be afraid that, that I might mess it up with my own ideas and my own want-tos and not listen to God. I need to be afraid of that because God is not okay with that. All right? You remember in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, you know, some of these people that say that, they think it's so wise and, as I said, profound to say we, we shouldn't be afraid of God at all. Do you remember who Solomon was? Solomon was the man that God gave wisdom to when he prayed for it, so that he was wiser than any man on the face of the earth. And the whole book of Ecclesiastes is him looking at what life should really be about for all of us. And in the end of the book, he says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. The whole matter is this search for what life should really be about for us. And the answer he came up with was the very first thing he says in verse 13, Ecclesiastes 12, is fear God. Fear God. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10. There in verse 12. He says, And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God? What do, not only does God want, God requires that we fear him just as he did those people in the Old Testament. Now, why would I be afraid of God? Because God is so powerful. I should be afraid of God because God can do anything with me that he wants to. He is the almighty God. 
The Bible speaks of the wrath of God. When God gets mad at somebody and it's not a good situation for the person he's mad at. Something bad is going to happen to them. In the book of Hebrews, he says, if you sin willfully after you know better, you, you come to knowledge of the truth. He says, vengeance is mine. God is a vengeful God. We should be afraid of God's vengeance. You do not want the power of God coming at you in a bad way. Back in the 70s, there was a singer named Jim Croce. And he had a song called, You Don't Mess Around With Jim. And the chorus went like this. You don't tug on Superman's cape. You don't spit in the wind. You don't pull the mask off the old, old ranger. And you don't mess around with Jim. Jim, the man in the song, was a big old mean fella. And he would fight all the time and just tear people up. And, and now, the, the don't spit in the wind thing, it doesn't really fit with my point. I mean, it, that's just dumb. You, if you spit in the wind, you're going to get spit on your clothes, okay? So don't do that. But the other three things are you've got Superman, and you've got the Lone Ranger, and you've got Jim. And they're both bigger and stronger than you, and they can hurt you if they want to. So you don't mess around with them. You don't make them mad at you. And on a way grander scale, that is exactly what we're taught about God. He is the almighty God. He is so powerful, and we do not want that power turned against us. We should be afraid of that. And listen, you know, tying, being afraid of God to obedience, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. When I am afraid to make God mad, it makes it easier for me to do what he wants me to do. And as much as this man that preached that sermon might like to think those two things shouldn't be together, God puts them together. Listen to him. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 again. Fear God and what? And keep his commandments. He ties those two things together. Look back in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5, there in verse 29. He says, Oh, that there were such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always. God ties them together. Go back to that verse in chapter 10 we looked at. Chapter 10, there in verse 12. He says, And now, O Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways? That's obedience. And to love him and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Fearing the power of God is a good thing, and we need to realize that. And listen, that's not just Old Testament stuff either. One more on that. Look in Acts chapter 10. When it comes to the gospel and what is revealed to us about the gospel and fearing God. In Acts chapter 10, there in verses 34 and 35, it says, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he who fears him and works righteousness is accepted with him. 
I mean, we want to be accepted by God, right? That's how you get to go to heaven. And those under the gospel, just as in the other ages, those who fear him and keep his commandments, those are the people God accepts. So the power of God is something we need to pay attention to. But listen, there's another side to this power of God, and that is a good side. If I'm a child of God, I'm glad he's the almighty God. I'm glad that I'm, I rejoice in the great power of God because now I have that on my side. You remember in Matthew 19, 26, where Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. Why? Because he's the almighty. He's all powerful. He can do whatever he decides to do. Literally, whatever he decides to do. So if he promises me, I will never leave you or forsake you, he can make, that, make sure that's the way it is. If he promises me, he will listen to my prayers and respond to them. He can make sure that happens. If he promises me, I will watch over you and I will guard you. He will make that happen. When he says that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now that has a lot more meaning because that, that line, that verse literally means that your prayer to God, when you are a right, person who's right with God, it changes things. It makes something different happen than would have happened if you had not asked God to intervene and do something about it. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. It makes a difference. James 5, 16. Why does it make a difference? Because when God listens to you and responds by your request, by your pleading to God... You are putting into action the great power of God. And listen, when God does something with his great power, a lot of wonderful things can happen. We were talking at supper tonight about playing games like cards and dominoes and about winning and losing. And I just happened to mention, you know, I, I like to win. I mean, I, I don't like games where we don't keep score. <laughs> <laughs> Just, I was raised in a very competitive family, and, and if you win, you get to enjoy it. If you don't, you have to take it, okay? That's just kind of the way we are. I like to win. But the one game I want to make sure I win at is the game of life. And if I am on God's side, then God's on my side. And I have the power of God behind me in this life and when this life is over. And there's a very simple question that's a, a very good question in Romans 8, 31, where it says, if God be for us, who can be against us? We need to think about the power of God. Terminology like, the, 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 his majesty. Okay, we think of majestic mountains and they're just great big old mountains. You can't move them. They're just huge. They're powerful. They're strong. Nothing can touch them. Well, God is, is his majesty in the book of Psalms. 
And other terminology like God Almighty. He is the Almighty God. Nothing can touch God and defeat God. Okay? So what does this have to do with the resurrection? Well, look over in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is writing to the brethren at Ephesus. And he wants them to know several things. There's a long sentence in here. We'll start with about, uh, let's start with verse 15. He says, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Okay? So, what are you praying for? For the Ephesians, Paul, he tells us, verse 17, that the God of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of story, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, okay, so your, your eyes would be open to something, what is it? Here it is that you may know what is the hope of this calling, what the riches of His glory and His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places. God says, Paul says, I'm praying for God to give you wisdom that he would open your eyes, that you would know what the hope of, the, of our calling is, where we're trying to get to, a home in heaven, and so that you would know the glory of that inheritance in the saints. You would, you would actually understand how wonderful heaven is going to be. And he says, and you also need to understand what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. The power that we have available to us through our almighty God when we have him on our side and doing for us. Well, how do I know? What, we've talked about some things. Psalm talked about the creation of the world. What example does Paul give here? Let me ask you something. Just stop for a second. If you could choose anything that you think you'll never see, you cannot imagine it happening. Do you think seeing somebody raised from the dead might be one of the answers? Let me tell you something. I know a lot of people who've died. They're all still dead. Not a one of them's been raised from the dead. I have preached funerals. Dead people. My funeral didn't do them any good as far as that's concerned. They're still dead. I have never seen somebody raised from the dead. And is not our mentality, rightly so from a worldly standpoint, that when you die, it's over with, right? You're done. They're just, you're dead. They're gone. Just a memory. Can't even imagine somebody coming out of a grave. I still, I mean, it's hard to picture that, isn't it? But that has happened. It was done by the power of God, verse 20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Listen, even 
the apostles who were repeatedly told he was going to be raised from the dead couldn't hardly believe it. And Paul says, I want you, I, to the Ephesians, he says, I pray for you that you can really grasp this thing about the power of God. And the best evidence you have of the power of God, according to everything that we know as human beings on the face of this earth, is that empty grave right there, that empty tomb. That God raised Jesus from the dead. Because there's a conclusion when we grasp that, that we come to. And that is that if God can raise Jesus from the dead, He can do anything. He really is the almighty, all-powerful God. For children of God, that's a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. Okay? All right. Now, this grace speaks of other things. It also speaks of the deity of Christ. Okay? Now, there are several times. One of our confession we're to make when we're following the plan of salvation is that I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Now, we, God has a lot of children. We are His children. We are the sons and daughters of God. But there is only one who is the only begotten of the Father. John 3.16 tells us. Only one. And back then, they didn't know who he was. We would automatically, because we're 2,000 years later, know who it's supposed to be. We would say, well, that's Jesus. They didn't know that. They didn't know that. They didn't know that when Jesus was born in Nazareth, the general population... And they didn't know that this was the, the Messiah, the Christ. This was the Son of God. And when we talk about Him being the Son of God, turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 1 and, and, and see where we need to go with that. In, in Hebrews chapter 1, there, there's some talk about the angels there as compared to Jesus, and He was higher than the angels and, and that kind of thing. And in verse 5 he says, Hebrews 1 verse 5, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Who did he, what angel did he say that to? None of them. They're, he is the only begotten of the Father. No angel, none of us, we don't get that, that title. Okay. And then he says in verse 8, But unto the Son he saith, Unto his only begotten Son, the Father says this, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Now, did you get that? The Father says to the Son, O God. God the Father calls Jesus God. And that would hearken back to, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, that's Jesus, and the Word was God. He's deity. Jesus is God. He is Emmanuel. He was God with us in a human body. Now, don't ask me to explain all that. I'm not going to do it because I can't. 
All I know is he was man and he was God. And whenever we think of deity, automatically your, your mind should go to authority. Okay? So, that empty grave is about Jesus being the Son of God. We'll see that in just a second. And your mind automatically should go to authority because he's God. Okay, so all the children where I preach, in fact, everybody, if I just stop in a sermon and say, what's God's job? They'll all say, God gets to make the rules. They all know that's what they're supposed to say, okay. Why? Because that's what God does. God gets to make the rules. When it comes to life, and morals, and right and wrong, and sin and righteousness, and good and bad, and good and evil, to religion, I get to make no rules. And I don't want to hurt your feelings, but you don't get to make any rules either. God's job is to make the rules. Our job is to decide whether we're going to listen to them or not. But I don't get to make anyone's up. God has already done that. And when it talks about him being the son of God, it is talking about authority. And we read where in, in Acts 2, it says, let all, verse 36, Peter said, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus both Lord and Christ. The word Lord literally means ruler. The one who makes the rules and enforces them. He was made both Lord and Christ. And Acts 2 is talking about when he was raised from the dead. 1 Timothy 6 verse 15, uh, Paul tells Timothy, speaking of Jesus, He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the King over all kings. And he is the Lord over all lords. Nobody stands where he stands. Ephesians 1, that passage we just read, if we just kept reading a couple of verses, you would read where God has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. He is the head of the church. Okay. I think I might have done this last time I was here, but I'm going to give you a silly little thing, okay? Now, I'm going to keep talking. Y'all just keep looking. What is this silly thing with the hand up there? Why is my hand up there? I mean, physically, why is my hand up in there? Because my head is telling my hand to go up for this illustration. And it's going to stay up there till this head tells it to come down. It hadn't told it yet, has it? It's still up there. It hadn't told it yet. Now watch, the head, my head's going to warn you. I'm going to tell it just a second. It's, watch, it's going to come down. Here you go, ready? There it goes. Why did it come down? Because my head told it to. The body does what the head says to do. When the body starts doing things that the head does not tell it to do, what do we do? We take ourselves to a doctor. Something's wrong, right? And there are diseases like that. He is the head of the church. He makes the rules. The church is to do what the head says for it to do. Authority. 
over all of us. In, Mark, in Matthew 16, when Jesus says, upon this rock, and that rock was the confession that he was the Son of God, that he has the authority, he says, I will build my church. You know what he doesn't say? I'm going to build our church. He doesn't say that. It's not our church. It's his church. He makes the rules. We get to be a part of it. We are his church, but it's his church. And even that passage is about his authority as the Son of God. Okay, so where does that come out? Well, it comes back to old pioneer preaching. The stuff that a lot of people don't like to hear nowadays. And that is that we must have book, chapter, and verse for what we believe, what we do, and what we teach other people. Colossians 3.17. Don't, don't fall out with that verse. Don't get tired of it. It says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. In the name of means by the authority of. And the only way you get authority from Jesus is if you can see where he tells us to do that. Or believe that. Or teach that to other people. Book, chapter, and verse. Second John verse 9 is the negative side of that. Where it says, whosoever goes onward and doesn't abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. That verse is about boundaries. Okay, the doctrine, the word doctrine just means teaching. So the picture you get in that verse is that, that I want to do something... But I look through the teachings of Christ and I don't find it in there. It's over there, outside of the teachings of Christ. But I still want to do it. So I don't stay within the teachings of Christ. I go onward over here so I can get that and do it. And he says, whosoever goeth onward and doesn't stay, abide in the teachings of Christ. He says, they don't have God. How much clearer could it be? In fact, one of, the, if one of the newer versions, it says, anyone who goes too far. When I go beyond the teachings of Christ, outside of what he taught, I don't have book, chapter, and verse far. When I go outside of it, I have gone too far. I don't have God. I left God behind. And let me put it to you in a very clear way, the way we would kind of say things. We don't get to make stuff up. You don't just get, get to just make stuff up in religion. God's already made up all the stuff we need. That is what this is. And it's up to us to follow that. Okay? And what I would encourage you to think about is that when we think of denominations, they've got names, they've got practices, they've got ways of worshiping, they've got organizations for the church. You don't really got all kind of things that have changed up. Somebody just made it up. God didn't say it. Some person or people just made it up and some others decided to follow that. 
But in the history of the Lord's church, that's happened too. Let's not get sanctimonious about it. Because from time to time, from generation to generation, there are doctrines and teachings that come up among God's people that some of God's people fall for, and they start teaching them, and they don't have book, chapter, verse. Let me tell you what book, chapter, verse means. It means, why do you do that? Well, let me show you. It's going to be in the book, and then you tell them the chapter, and then you tell them the verse. That's where Jesus taught. That's what book, chapter, and verse means. Bible authority. Authority from the Lord and Master, the King of Kings. That's what book, chapter, and verse is. And it doesn't matter if it's from someone outside the church or from our best friend, maybe even our family in the Lord's church. Guess which family should matter more? Guess which friend should matter more? It would be the family of God and the God that we serve. Okay? All that comes from Jesus being the Son of God. So remember, back then, they didn't know who that was. How did they find out? Look in Romans chapter 1. Okay, Romans chapter 1. And we'll just start with the first verse there. Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of the dead. Okay? Now, there's a little, little comma statement, and let's take that out and, and read verse 4 with me again. By God the Father, He was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. By the very act of the Father raising Jesus from the dead, He was declaring to the world forevermore, this is my only begotten Son. You remember what else He said in Matthew 17, 5? Hear ye Him. We don't get to make it up. God's already done that. And that's why we have to contend for the faith. And you young people, let me tell you something. We have a lot of boys in our family. I even had a point in time where one of mine asked me, Daddy, why are you in trouble all the time? <laughs> I just don't how you answer a question like that. But I know part of the answer was, because there's a lot of wrong out there. And even in the Lord's church, there's a lot of wrong that raises its head sometimes. And you have people of God who will stand up and contend for the faith. When you contend for the faith, understand, you're contending against something and somebody. There's a real person there that you're arguing with, you're fighting with. 
And it is our duty to do that. And it's not just the preacher's or elder's job. In Jude 3, he says, when I, when I wrote unto you of the common faith, that means it's everybody's same faith, everybody's same duty. You need to stand up for what God says and take whatever comes. God holds us accountable for contending for the faith. And listen, some of you young people, there may be things like that going on where, and you don't even know. You're just, you know, you're just there. I've been there, done that. I know that. Okay. But someday, guys like me and Bob and your elders and your parents, we're going to be dead and gone. And you're going to be on your own. Are you going to be ready? If you claim Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, understand He is deity. He has all authority. And in Matthew 28, 18, He says, All power, all authority is given me in heaven and earth. Nobody else has it, only Him. He gets to make the rules. We don't. How do I know that? Because God declared that when he raised him from the dead and set him on his own right hand and made him both Lord and Christ. The empty grave talks about that. Okay? One more thing. And that is the empty grave of Jesus speaks of a judgment day that's coming. It speaks of a judgment day that's coming. And in each one of these subjects, these three subjects we've talked about, I hope you notice that God Himself ties Jesus' resurrection to proving these things. It's going to be the same thing with the Day of Judgment. We read a lot about the Day of Judgment. We're told to be ready for the Day of Judgment, and that it is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. There's a lot of passages about the Judgment Day. Let me quickly give you a few details we find out. Number one, Jesus will be the judge. Jesus is going to be the one sitting on the throne. We're going to go stand before him, and he will make a judgment about us that he will result in us going to heaven or us going to hell. Jesus will be our judge. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's going to be universal. It means everybody's going to have to do it. You're not going to get to skip out on it. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I will be there. You will be there. Whether we want to be or not. The judgment will be individual in nature. Which means that when I stand before God, it's going to be me. And He will be dealing with me directly as an individual as to where I stand with him. So you young people, you listen to this. It doesn't matter whether your parents go to church and you tag along with them if that's really what's going on. God's going to judge you for you. That's a sobering thing, isn't it? God sees you just like he sees your parents. It doesn't matter 
if we're a member of a church that as a church does what's right. He's going to judge me as a person in that church by myself. The standard is going to be God's word. In other words, the judgment is going to be where he takes the record of my life and he doesn't compare my life to your life or your life to my life. He compares my life to what he said. And that's it, to the law. And it doesn't matter if I'm better or worse than somebody else. That doesn't have anything at all to do with it. It matters, does my life match up with his law? That's what matters. We will be judged by our works. Several passages tell us by the things that we do here in this life. Okay? So how could I be sure that judgment day is coming? Read three passages with me. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 beginning with verse 36. Acts 10 verse 36. He says, but the word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word I say, you know, which was published throughout all Judea and began in Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, who they slew and hanged upon a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses who were chosen before of God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and the dead. It was Jesus who was ordained to be our judge. But they killed him, didn't he? How could a dead person judge us? Because he's not dead anymore. God raised him to be our judge on the day of judgment. Acts 17. Acts 17. Verse 30. He says, in the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. He's going to be our judge. The righteous God will be our judge. And how do I, you really want me to believe that? I mean, you really want me to believe that? I have you ever seen a judgment day before? I've never seen a judgment day before. Well, we're guaranteed by God. We are guaranteed by God that day is coming. Listen to it. Whereof, of that day of judgment that's coming, he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Just as surely 
as the Father raised him from the dead, there will be a judgment day. There will be a day I have to stand before God and answer for myself. Okay, look in Romans 14. Do you hear the grave talking? But God's tying them in here. God is saying that your guarantee of these things is that I raised him from the dead. That's the meaning of the empty grave of Jesus. Romans chapter 14, verse 11. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Every one of us, we will give an account of ourselves. I will give an account of me. You will give an account of you to God. So where's the resurrection in that verse? It's in there. You see it? You know, over in Texas, y'all may have this over here, but we have a thing we'll say. Somebody, you're trying to tell somebody something and they don't want to believe you. And we'll say something like, well, just as sure as I'm standing here, that's, that's the truth. Just sure as I'm standing. Well, I'm standing here, so it must be the truth. Just sure as I'm standing here. You have that kind of statement here in this passage. Jesus says, as I live, this is going to happen. But I thought Jesus was dead. He was, but he's not dead anymore. He was raised from the dead. So now he can say, just as surely as I'm alive, just as surely as I was raised from the dead, I promise you, everybody's going to have a good account on the day of judgment. As I live, this is going to happen. That grave's talking to us. That empty tomb is talking to us. What it says to you is we can serve the most powerful God, the most powerful being ever was, ever will be. Or we can fight against him. We can accept the authority he has to make the rules or we can just refuse and pay the price. And we can go to the day of judgment. Not ready if that's what we choose. But the day's coming. And so here's what I would say to you. The last two years I've seen a lot of people die. A lot of people. My, my wife told me don't tell you all this, but I've been a COVID nurse for about six months now. I've seen a lot of people die. Young, old, in between. And my question to you is this. Do you know you're going to be alive tomorrow? I know what the answer. I hope you know the answer to that is no. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. If that was to happen to you tonight, tomorrow morning, if you were to wake up dead tomorrow, would you be ready for the judgment day? How would you stand if you had to start giving an account of everything you've done? Nothing's been forgiven. You, you're going to hear it all come up. 
It doesn't have to be that way. You can repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. That means He will forgive you. And you know what? If you're forgiven will not happen on the day of judgment, it won't be brought up. It, those things won't be brought up. You, you won't have to give an account of those things except to say they are forgiven through Jesus and the blood of Jesus. I did what he said to do and he promised and he'll keep his promise. So I encourage you tonight. We're going to sing a song. It's, we call it a song of invitation. We are inviting you to consider your soul we're inviting you to consider where would you be if you die? Are you ready? And if you're not, we're inviting you to get ready. And you do that by letting Jesus save you the way he says, which is to repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you're ready for that, and we can help you, come and let us know. Together we stand and while we sing.